Hey guys, before we get started with the episode, we wanted to tell you a little bit about what's happening in the world of Osiris. So as we are here wrapping up Summer Tour, want to let you guys know of the three Dick's Quick Hits from HF Pod. Night one, Matt Dwyer from the Helping Friendly Pod joined RJ to talk about a phenomenal show. Dick's two, I sat down with RJ, talked about a Saturday night special. And finally, Sunday night at Dick's final show of the summer tour, our friend Diana Hank at Diana underscore two ends sat down to talk a little bit about her thoughts on the run as a whole, the impact of curveball, curveball's cancellation, and uh, the third night at Dick's. In addition, there's the Osiris newsletter and live fall tour couch report. Yeah, we're already talking about fall tour. Go to Osiris.com for the newsletter sign up. And the Couch Report is brought to you by Relics Magazine. You can see this pre-show, during set break, post-show. It's actually going to be every stop on the fall tour. Of course, being Albany, Hampton, Nashville, Chicago, and Vegas. It's hashtag Couch Report. And we're going to put a link in that to uh, the show notes and Twitter. And we'll be talking a lot more about that as we get closer to fall tour here. But right now, we got to wrap up Fish Summer Tour. So let's go beyond the pond. David Goldstein. I am Brian Brinkman. You're listening to episode 43 of the Beyond the Pond podcast. This is the podcast in which Brian and myself often use the music of Fish as a means of introducing the listener to other bands. These are usually non-jam bands because we love Fish. We are Fish fans. Sometimes we find the problem with Fish fans is all they listen to is Fish. Fish is great. I listen to them a lot. It probably comprises maybe, I don't know, 10, 50% of what I listen to. But there's at least 85% of a bunch of other bands that me like, I like, Brian like, and we think you should know about as well. Absolutely. And here we are in our 43rd episode, recapping the final stop of Summer Tour 2018. Getting into all the... It's been a while. It's been, it's been a while, man. It's been a while. It's been a while. <laughs> it's, we'll talk about why it's been a while. Uh, I'm excited to get back behind the mic. It feels super weird. feels super good again as well. We're going to talk about a couple segments of music from Fish's recent uh, performance at Dick's Sporting Goods Park. Fantastic uh, venue to see the band in. Watch them close out their summer tour here for the last 10 days. And uh, we're going to talk a bit about the impact of that of, of the run, as well as some of the uh, 
big musical segments that we took away from it and uh, talk about some new music as well. Yes, and some of the themes you can expect to hear during this episode include Curveball Hangovers, 2018 as another 3.0 transitional year, and Sleek Musical Transitions. And on that note, let's get to the fish. guys so welcome back here as you mentioned at the top of the show we're going to cover a couple musical segments we're doing this a little bit differently than we do most of our episodes but then again our episodes this summer tour have had a liberal touch to them uh we're calling this episode dick's transitions for two different reasons first and foremost we're talking about the 831 2018 ghost into cross-eyed and painless and the 9 2018 46 days into tweezer into golden age. So very slick musical transitions there. But as we're going to get into it here, especially in the first segment of the show, we're going to talk a lot about kind of this transitional period. It feels like the band is in right now. Um, But first and foremost, why are we talking about these gems? Well, in a run that was overshadowed by the curveball cancellation, these were the jams where the band connected in a clear, an effortless manner that's come to define the best of 2018. Now, one quick note before we go any further. I think we would both agree that the light is the best jam of this run. Would, yeah. would you go with that, Dave? Yes, I would. That was uh, definitely the one jam that probably got me to off the couch and the grooving the hardest and was the most impressed by. But that said... We have never done an episode on the official Dick's Light from September 1st, 2012. The best version of Light of all time and perhaps the best jam that Dick's ever played. So really, before we get to that, we can't really focus on a light that was played at Dick's, right? We could. We can't. It would be wrong yeah. as much as we love it. And I, I was right there with you. That's, in my memory, my favorite part of the overall run. Um, but the Ghost in the cross and Painless, I would say... This was the biggest moment of the best set of the weekend and the point where everyone rightfully thought that Fish was going to completely burn dicks to the ground. Um, that as excellent. well as... Yeah. No, I was going to say there was that and the excellent version of Harry Hood in the two-hole. Yes. Like if that was a very good version of that song where if you just walked into the room and didn't know any better and checked your watch, you'd think it was like the end of the second set. It was Yes, <laughs> exactly. Um, you know, in terms of this ghost and a cross-eyed and painless, of note, this was the first time a jam has directly segued into cross-eyed and painless in eight years since Camden 2010. Um, and this was the very first, first set cross-eyed and painless since August 13th, 1997 at Burgettstown. Um on Sunday night, the 46 days into Tweezer, into Golden Age segment is so smooth, so effortless, and represents one of the two to three best third quarters of 2018. Just unbelievable stuff there. Yeah, I mean, both jam segments, they offer insight into what makes Fish so special when they're on. It's effortless connection around a singular riff. It's foreign and familiar at the same time, and... You know, each of the moments led to a song that everyone loves 
made it uh, made it all that much special. Now, I think before we go into talking about um, each of the individual dick shows and the jams within, I think kind of what we want to do is a summer tour final grade section. Because, you know, as we know, the dick shows, they represent the end of the summer tour. I think this year we can say it was a bit different, obviously, given the elephant in the room that was the cancellation of their ball. So... Yeah. For my final summer tour grade, I'm going to give an INC. It stands for incomplete. It's like, uh, you know, what happens if um, you have to repeat the first grade or something like that. I mean, I think it's really impossible to properly grade this tour because of the curveball cancellation, which I think had ramifications that bled into the Dick's run as well. I think the curveball cancellation was in Fish's heads, as it, you know, properly should have been. And while certainly many of the shows on this tour were excellent, being uh, Night 3 of the Gorge, I think, Night 1 of Bill Graham, Alfreda 1 and 2, the uh, sloppy fun of Raleigh. Let's let's not forget that second set. And even if um, a lot of shows top to bottom weren't that high, you had highlights like Los Angeles had that huge fuego might actually still be my favorite jam of the tour. Um, There's a whole lot to love, but completely nixing a festival is just too weird, and Dick's kind of felt trapped in between. I mean, with a band like Fish, I think everyone knows at this point that have anything reflecting expectation is usually a bad idea because they play what they want to play, how they feel. Everyone is always trying to guess like the hot show based upon, you know, past history, past venues, Obviously, Dix has had almost like universally strong shows in the past. But I think if there's any time kind of had some expectations, it's like the fan base kind of rightfully wanted them to be so much more than simply fish shows because there's no precedent for what happened. Like a lot of people got Dick's tickets at the last minute and flew out thinking, okay, because curveball was canceled, they're just going to lay it out in the line and they're going to play. And I think they had a right to expect a little something aside from normal fish shows. And apart from the first night, which they kind of really came out hard like they had something to prove, uh, I don't know, I think for the second and third night, maybe they could have exhibited a little more effort. I think it's not the band style to address uh, you know such things from the stage I didn't really expect them to go out and say like sorry we love you guys but you know come on a little bit and I think it's also worth noting how incredible there's a generally speaking fish ship that doesn't cancel shows I mean there's been shows in which on stage it's really obvious that Trey has a head cold, somebody is sick, like they're not playing their best, and maybe you think maybe the show should have been canceled, but they never cancel shows. Uh, I mean, other bands, they do a second thought. Like the band Mastodon just canceled like their entire tour. Like Morrissey cancels shows so many times, it's incredible that you even fucking play your shows at all these days. Nicki Minaj canceled the tour because she felt she hadn't rehearsed enough. We just take it for granted that when Fish says they're going to play a show, they always fucking play it. And that's what makes them great. So when Curveball got canceled, if some fans went to Dick's expecting the world, I kind of get it. You know, 
I, I, I totally agree with all of your points. And I agree. I would give it an INC as well, an incomplete. I think that no matter... <clears throat> No matter what Fall Tour brings, no matter what New Year's Eve brings, what 2019 brings, I think that we're going to look back on 2018 and always kind of wonder what could have been. And that goes for people like yourself, some of our close friends who all were on their way to Curveball, a lot of our listeners, all of whom, as someone speaking who was not ever planning on going to Curveball, I have just felt awful for all of you guys um ever since i i read the announcement um but then also for people like myself and everyone else of us who had no intention of going to curveball but had every intention of spending that weekend having great beers having friends over watching the shows listening to the shows analyzing the shows podcasting about the shows if that's your thing um I think we're all going to look back on this on this year and this tour and go, something was missing. Um, what I'll say as well is I've had this feeling lingering since probably Forum Night 1 that this year feels like yet another transition from a hot year to what's next. Reminds me in a lot of ways of 2014 and 2016. And while I'd say that the best shows of 2018 are certainly better than the best of those two years, I still can't help this like nagging feeling that the band was trying to make too many new things work this year rather than just playing. Granted, they're always evolving and they're always incorporating new sounds and styles and songs in their shows, but this year, even before Curveball, it felt so defined by Trey's rig that it took over whole shows and the whole sound of the band from a jamming standpoint at times. Um, beyond this, you know, the trepidation surrounding the neo-Nazis at the Gorge and everything that happened there that created some really weirdly bad energy within the community, um, to Curveball being canceled, plus, you know, shows like Gorge Night 2, Forum Night 2, Austin Set 1, Camden, Merriweather Night 1, Dick's Night 2, these shows almost felt like they were mailing it in at critical moments of the tour. Um, there were just a lot of weird moments that happened throughout the overall tour that kind of made you go, are they really in this thing or what's happening here? Um, you know, to your point, Dave, I think there's a lot of really good stuff. But overall, this tour has felt at times more exhausting and frustrating, um, like the above tours that I mentioned, something we should never really feel about Fish Tour. Um, and part of me just really feels that they need to focus on fall now. I would argue in some cases that part of the reason that they may have held back throughout parts of this tour or they were trying out these different sounds and trying things that may not have worked very easily but could have worked if they kept pushing at it was to prepare themselves for Curveball, this big experimentation at Curveball. And when that got sidetracked, sidetracked right. they went into Dick's being like, well, how do we top this? And we'll get into it. But, um, you know, I think that they need to focus on fall put this all behind them um and if i could just in terms of my incomplete grade here rank the shows i saw i would say it would look like this starting from the bottom working my way to the top dick's night two forum night one forum night two austin dick's night three 
and Dick's Night One being the supreme creme de la creme of what I saw in 2018 thus far and what I believe that they played in 2018. Yeah, the only show I saw was Camden Night 2, which was fine. That's a solid beat. Everything's right, and the first set was extremely good. That could be maybe a top five jam of the tour. Otherwise, uh, you know, like I had previously stated, I think probably the first two nights of Alpharetta were my favorites, followed by the third night of The Gorge and the first night of Bill Graham. My single favorite jam might have been the Fuego from Forum Night 2, which I just think was brilliant and I listen to on a pretty regular basis. But just to your point about Trey's rig, I mean, that kind of rendered, God, the first two shows at Tahoe, those, were, those weren't so much shows as just Trey, like, futzing with all, all manners of sound and tone to the point where it kind of just got in the way. They're like sound of, checks almost. Yeah, they're kind of like sound checks. Plus, I don't know why this is exactly, but uh, in terms of the live fish recordings, this got corrected by the time they got to the gorge. But the live fish uh, soundboard recordings of the first two Tahoe shows are compressed for an inch of their life. It's really strange. Yeah, they sound um, like something that you heard back in like early 3.0. It's a little weird. Right. So um, almost... It's kind of weird that essentially just like end up sacrificing the first two shows of the tour. And even right, though right, right. Tahoe One had had a really good ghost in the first set. And it had something else I can't quite recall. Yeah, and I mean, I will say, again, I don't think it's anything close to 2016 or 2014 in terms of levels of frustration and no. confusion. I feel like at every moment of the tour where people were like, that was a bad show. You know, you think about like Meriwether Night 1. You and I had a lot of conversations following that show where we were like pretty annoyed and kind of frustrated with just like whatever the hell the band was doing that night. And um, then they came out on Sunday night. And I don't think either one of us would argue that it's one of the top three shows of the tour. But it was a fucking fun show. <laughs> oh, yeah. It was, you know? Meriwether 2 was super fun. Super yeah, fun. like it was a killer, killer it show. Was fun, all that like all the heavy hitters in the first set, bathtub ginger, yeah. torture curtain. You know, they had a purpose. It was a fun show. They were going to send this off to Curveball, and everyone was pretty happy with that. But total. But yeah, I don't think anything quite approached. Um, God, what you had like the Forum in summer 2016, both to the like the Wrigley Field shows. If you get past the novelty of them playing in Wrigley Field, those shows were terrible. Oh, I'm a diehard Cubs fan. I've never gotten past the novelty of it. <laughs> That's it. That's all it is for me. First time we met in person, though. That you was. Oh, you're right. You're right. That's the origins of BTP. Um, origins. First time we met in person. We met at Oberon. We met at uh, Murphy's. I think you were wearing a Mets, yes. a Mets uh, which was pretty audacious of you. But uh, I wouldn't. Now that I know fish. you, I wouldn't. I wouldn't expect anything less. Um, <laughs> So right. jumping into jumping into dicks here. So starting with Friday night, which um, man, again, it's hard for me to talk about this just knowing everyone who couldn't have been there, and um, you know, I, I would say that this show is up there with October seventh, two thousand, August fifteenth, two thousand four, and March sixth, two thousand nine, as like the most emotional fish shows of all time. I had not experienced a fish show like this since when I was at Coventry. Um, I looked around me when the band came... Well, 
first, if you're at Dick's, and if you've been there and you've sat page side on the uh, in the stands, you know exactly what I'm talking about. If you've never been there, the thing that's really cool about Dick's is the band walks um, across this bridge behind the stage and then walks down a flight of stairs inside of the building and then comes out and you see all the flashlights and they walk down a flight of stairs and then up to the stage. And if you're the only place in the venue you can see it is like the first half of page side up in the stands. And when they emerged, we all knew it was like 803, 804. Everyone in our section was like looking at that site, that area. When they emerged, there was this roar that just engulfed the entire page side. As everyone realized what happened, it spread across the venue before the lights even dropped. This was like a good 45 seconds. And people were hugging each other. People were high-fiving. I saw some people crying. Like, there was certainly a sense of worry leading into the show. Uh, there was also a lot of expectations to everything that Dave just said. I mean, this is six years to the date. Day of the week, date-wise, after the legendary Fuck Your Face show completely changed the paradigm of what was possible in 3.0. And the band here takes the stage to a louder and more emotive roar than ever than I've ever heard at a fish show, personally. Um, did any of this come through on the webcast, Dave? Hmm, not really. I mean, the closest thing I could compare it to from what you're telling me is um, in 2002, I saw a Rush show that was the first Rush show, I think in five years, it was the tour opener. And this was after the drummer Neil Peart experienced some super personal tragedies and people weren't sure if the band was going to play ever again. So when all the gear is on the stage and the roadies take like uh, the big sheet off of Neil Peart's drum kit, everyone started screaming. It was incredible. Cool. That's so really the band cool. wasn't even out there, just the drum kit. People are screaming and crying, all like men in like leather jackets or tears streaming down their face. So... Fish fans are extremely hardcore. Rush fans can be equally hardcore. It, it was a tender moment. I mean, I know uh, from the small couch trip party I had here, we were, you know, very excited. And there was certainly lots of trepidation, like you were saying. But we were, you know, happy to see the band come out. When they jumped into that version of Free, it was a really confident, high-tempo really energetic version of that song right yeah you know it's funny we were talking before the show in the lot uh, about what they're going to open with and you know everything's being tossed around and um close friend of mine who i saw the shows with who i've now seen i think we counted we're upwards of like 20 shows together uh sam timberg friend of the pod um timberg big friend of the pod Uh, said they're going to open up with something super obvious that nobody's thinking of that's going to totally make sense when it happened. And when they started strumming the, the chords to free, I was like, that's exactly what it is. Um, Eminence Front Tease from Trey just had the whole place going insane. Um, that was a song we listened to on repeat all weekend to get us hyped up for the shows. Um, Harry Hood, like you mentioned, the second slot. First time it was in the first set um, since uh, December 2nd, 2003, the 20th anniversary show. Um, my text messages to all my friends just say it all. I, I, I legitimately started crying during this moment. Uh, and I just, I was so happy for the band. I was so happy for all of us. I was just, it, it was a heavy, heavy moment. Um, 
you know, they couldn't have picked their songs better, I feel like, throughout the first set. What's the use? I mean, just the song title alone just raises so many questions about, you know, what the bandage has been through. Blaze on this, like, elderly age anthem for the band rages for 12 minutes of just total type one glory and then the jam that we're going to play here a little snippet of the ghost and the crosshead and painless and then the simple that followed to me is the peak of the show um you know just in terms of energy in terms of connection from the band and perhaps the run i mean that was just i the last time i remember being that excited at a fish show was in that same building on that same exact day six years earlier also for my crew on the couch we might have been singing the words webcast after free because it was a free webcast (laughs) free webcast that's good um set two was uh you know, kind of similar to Night One of Dick's last year that I was at as well. Fluid Masterpiece. Um, it was odd, I will say, they kicked off uh, the set two in the same manner as Night One of 2017 with No Man in No Man's Land, Jamming, and then Carini. The No Man did not do nearly as much as it did in 2017, but the Carini went to a completely different direction and did some really beautiful stuff. Um, total bliss. Uh, really, really liked that. Yeah, that was the Carini. It was a, a tray workshop, and how much emotion can we squeeze out of the upper limits of the fretboard? I mean, there was, and it kind of sounded like he was like squeezing the last few bits of juice out of a lemon. Like it was less than a full band jam, and you know, fish backing up trays, just like cathartic peaks of noise. Like he's like scaling a skyscraper, a mountain is getting to the top. It wasn't. The fluidity full band of uh, the Carini from Dick's Night 1 2017. It was some cathartic stuff. Turn up loud. It was really good. Yeah. Yeah, and it holds up. Uh, that and and the light, which we'll talk about, those both hold up like crazy. Um, theme from bottom came in the third slot. For an unnecessary song of the set, this is the best kind of unnecessary song. Um, Life is good if that's what's happening. Um, it did prevent a freaking four-song second set, and uh, I wouldn't stop hammering on about that all weekend long. Even though it was a beautiful theme, the jam on it was excellent. And, you know, if I'm going to spend any more time complaining about theme, I should just turn in my fish card. Right. <laughs> and they played Mercury. You know how we feel about Mercury on Beyond the Pond. Of the three versions they played this summer, I think this was the second best. The best being the one from Bill Graham, Night One, that had some very cool Type 2 underwater jamming. The worst being the mess was Meriwether Night One. And this one, it didn't quite go Type 2, but it got nice and raunchy towards the end. It sounded like they were teasing uh, the Pink Floyd song Young Lust at one point. And, you know, certainly far tighter than the one they played in Meriwether Night One. Yeah, far tighter than that, and um, it still kind of reminds me of Golden Age in the sense that they can't totally bust out of that song yet. Um, We got some versions this summer that went a little bit closer than we expected it to from getting outside of the song, but, um, you know, I love that in that slot, the four-hole there. And then Light finally contends with 2012. Sounds remarkably similar to the Undermined from 831-2012. I remember during that performance, as well as this light, 
in my head as it was like clearly coming to the peak that they were going to end at just begging Trey to put his guitar down after the jam and being so happy when he did it. The fact that I, I remember distinctly that moment from um, uh, 831 2012, just being like, end of the set here. And I had the exact same feeling as the light was peaking on Friday night. And uh, I was just so happy to see that happen. There was no need for another song to be added on at that point in time. That was the first time lights closed the second set. I think I know it closed the first set once or twice. November 27, 2009 comes to mind. And again, kind of similar to the Karini, because in the end, the last three minutes, she's just, Trey is slaying demons. He's just yes. banishing yes. them to the pits of hell, away with you curveball demons, just peals of noise. So, great fucking show. Easily the best show of the run. Not even close. If you thought that was the best show of the summer, I wouldn't think you were crazy. It wasn't my favorite, but I could see it. I would say that it is the best show of the summer with you and I only diverge on Alpharetta Night 1 versus 2. I'm more of a 2 fan than a 1 fan, but we both agree about Gorge 3. You're sick. (laughs) I will say, before we move on to Saturday, (laughs) two quick things I'll say before we jump on into Saturday is um, so the first set ended and I remember feeling something I've never felt before to fish show which was I didn't need them to come out for set for a second set I remember being exhausted <laughs> and just like so satisfied I was I was just done like and and I don't know I have not sat down and listened to the whole show in a, in a full setting yet I've listened to highlights of it I don't know if I'll get that sensation listening back but in the moment, it was—it just felt like I had run like ten miles and been through like this like massive celebration with like all of my friends. I don't know. It was just—it was—I have not felt that way. I've never at the end of a first set been like, "Okay, I can go home now." That was enough. Um, the other thing I would say is we had a girl sitting behind us on night one, who that was her first fish show. And she said, um, I'm going to see this band every chance I can. (laughs) And she just like started laughing and she was clearly so excited. It was so awesome to see that impact on someone else. All right. She got a good one coming out of the gates. Hopefully she can see a bunch more in 10 years and tell people my first show was Dick's One 2018. I was born under a proper fish star. Anyway, <laughs> let's gear shift. Let's see. What do we got? September 1st, next night. Weird show. September 1st. This is such a confounding show. I mean, this is literally the opposite. Spe- well, not the opposite spectrum, but this is like, you know, the opposite feel of what we had on Friday night. Um, first and foremost, the cheers when the band walked on stage just paled in comparison to the night before. It felt just like another Fish show. And yeah, it this show like is a... Such. This is like a um, Wednesday night in the suburb of St. Louis where there's still tickets available the day of. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. It was very, very strange and um, Sand and Down Disease, excellent one-two punch. You've got 
you know, essentially 40 minutes of music right there. There are 30 minutes of music right there that just blows everybody, you know, blows everyone away to kick things off. D, uh, Down with Z's really reminding me of the September 22nd, 2000 version. Thought it could have gone bigger, but at the moment I didn't think it needed to. Um, and how I kind of wish I could think that was great. back. I mean, people were tweeting, oh, I see what it's like. They're playing the second set first again, like last night. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Which would have been kind of, a, so much. kind of a fun thing. Um, Shade came next in the three-hole. Beautiful song. Gorgeous lyrics. I don't really think that I needed to hear it right then and there. And I think it kind of is what led to the weird flow for the rest of the night. And kind of in my mind, it feels like the kind of breaking point for the like kind of the dividing point for the whole run yeah, I mean the rest of the set Home, Wolfman's Brother Wombat, Everything's Right Bathtub Gin, they all kind of feature moments where the band really could have stepped out and blown up into a jam and instead they all stayed in the box it was frustrating I don't think anything was more frustrating than the Wolfman's Brother which towards the end like the last two no. minutes there's just a ridiculously cool modulation that seems to come out of nowhere. And I said, oh, all right, where's this going? It lasts like 25 seconds. Like, they were purposely trying to shoot themselves in the foot. Yeah, I don't know what happened there, because to that point, you know, you had the Down With Disease as well. You could very easily say to yourself, okay, there's going to be another jam song. And, you know, the, the, the hard thing is, like, Home is such a awesome and frustrating song in the sense that they literally have a jam built in. Like, no effort to keep jamming. And it's seven or eight minutes every time. Has so much potential. Um, Wolfman's Brother. enough to kind of jam. I don't think they're that's comfortable true. with it. That's probably true as well. I, I don't disagree with that. But, like, watching it live, I was like, there's a jam literally right here. Um... But Wolfman's, yeah, man, that was a moment where I was just like, it's always a great song. It always features a great rock and roll funk jam, you know, build. But when it modulated, it was like they've they've just like found this wormhole and they're going down it. We're going to see where it goes. And while I don't dislike any of the song selections for the rest of the first set, I think they're actually quite good. I don't think I enjoyed them as much because of that moment yeah um and then moving into second the second set set two felt very similar to set one a lot of big chances that were cut off before they had the chance to really bloom um set two really was similar to saturday dicks last year and then it both contained a raging type one choctaw's torture that threatened to go off the rails in a good way as well as a bunch of confidently played tunes that went absolutely fucking nowhere. <laughs> if you're only going to play Sneakin' Sally for six minutes, don't play it. That's not... That song gives you your, like, stanky Alan Toussaint, like, meters funk that can save a set or at least pull out of a nosedive. So when it came out of 2001, I thought... Okay, take this for a ride for 10, 12 minutes, get nasty, build it down, bring it back up, and then all's forgiven to a certain degree. 
and they play it for six minutes and play Slave to the Traffic Light, which, despite being a pretty well-played version of the song, just, it was unnecessary. I mean, there's nobody, nobody in that crowd who would really complain if instead of Slave, they just played Sci for like an extra 10 minutes. That's all. No, no. Um, and, you know, what the set needed was what Friday had, which was like, we don't really care what, how many songs we play or which songs we get to in the set list. We're just looking to play. And, you know, that is, it felt like they were thinking a little bit too much into the set list here. Um, felt like 2011. Set free. What's that? Felt like a summer 2011 set. Totally did. Totally did. Um, I will say one of my favorite parts of the second set, probably actually my favorite part was uh, Set Your Soul Free. It was the most expected placement of the whole weekend. Um, only say that because Soul Planet opening up the next night was very unexpected. But you knew one of those songs were going to open up the second set of Saturday night. Set Your Soul Free felt like the right call for it. Um, I loved the various experimentations within the jam, even though I know it still had legs and chances had they pushed a little bit harder. Felt to me a lot like 2.0 or like a two, 2012 Cubist jam and that it was very idea-based without resolutions. Um, I think it's one of those jams that tends to pretend bigger things in the future for the band, but in a limited run with so many expectations surrounding it simply based on the circumstances, um, you know, it's slightly disappointing that they opted to move just directly into Fuego as they were moving well into another segment of music. Yeah, and the Fuego, it had some moments of interest, as did the twist. Piper, 2001. But like you said, Brian, one of those shows where it kind of felt like they were trying to play a bunch of songs rather than just letting the music flow through them like it did on Friday. And as we have said in the past, I mean, you know, it's clear that they love playing Fuego. Trey gets the great fit, great facial expressions. It's got the great part when, like, you know, the heavy A major rip comes back in and Kuroda can, like, spotlight him. It's clearly it's a lot of fun to play. But with the exception of the recent L.A. Forum show, the jam is just one of the strange things in life is that they seem so hesitant to take it out there. And they did not take this one out there. Yeah, and, you know, this is a moment where I pause and I acknowledge that not every Fish fan wants to hear a show like they played on Friday. In fact, one of my closest fr- uh, fish friends, the guy I've seen 25 or 30 shows with, prefers shows like Friday, or excuse me, like Saturday. I get it. Not everyone is an obsessive nut like us. That said, in a weekend like this where the band was clearly holding some serious weight, you really have to wonder why they chose to play such a random mid-tour stop show at Dick's. That's all I would say. In the encore with more. Yeah. Going. Yeah. <laughs> Not there. No. Um, so First set closer, that's fine. Maybe you can like open a set with it, but Right. Let's get your dose of your dose of Michael Franti positivity. I get it, <laughs> but not what I would pick for the encore. Yo, Phoebe! How you feeling? Um, <laughs> it's the last time we will ever talk about Michael Franti on this fucking podcast, I promise all of you. Unless we talk about the disposable heroes of hypocrisy. <laughs> but I'm not even going to fucking do that. So. so moving on to Sunday before we go totally off the rails here. Uh, September 2nd, tour finale, 2012 tour. 
and this one was squarely in the middle. I will say I enjoyed this a thousand times more than Saturday. Um, I thought the first 40 minutes or so of set two, which we're already featuring some of here, is just a seamless highlight. The Soul Planet opener briefly flirts with type two, segueing smoothly into Possum. Really underrated moment of the weekend. The jam out of Soul Planet was fantastic. And then, you know, when they when you was clear, like I, I remember watching Trey goes over to fish and suddenly you hear the and the whole place just lost it. I mean, it was it was a great, great moment of, of just like raucous celebration amongst the fish community. And, um, I, I thought it was excellent. I, I, I liked that call a lot. I thought it was really great. Um, you know, it's a highlight of a first set. That's one of those kind of epic length grab bags where Trey just strings, strings together a bunch of songs and you say, okay, it's cool, I guess. I know that I texted you at some point. It was around the time that Miss You was played, and I was like, oh my God, we're like 11 songs deep and rarely caught cross nine, 10 songs here in late 3.0 Fish. It's uh, definitely an early to early stage type of thing. Yeah, it was like a 91 minute set. Yeah. It was like two Meriwether shows. Yeah, it was. <laughs> 91 minute set. I mean, is that really the best place to drop the mic song? Uh, was it keeping it real that I think most of the fan base had forgot about until it randomly showed up in that set? Maybe not. But no, they played three. I certainly know it wasn't. They played three riff songs in a row. That's cool. I, I like Miss You. And this is, you know, one of those sets actually you can kind of put on in the car and enjoy yeah. and forget about and not have to think about too much. So, yeah, I mean, I don't enjoy there's it. enough in there that's yes. There's enough in there that's good. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I will say Fish has this weird pattern of treating the final out of Dicks like it's a Tuesday night off market stop midway through the tour. I mean, look to September 12th, to, excuse me, September 2nd, 2012, set one. Not set two, that set two is brilliant. Uh, the sand, September right? 1st, yeah, it's the sand, Ghost Piper, just perfectness. Um, September 1st, 2013, August 31st, 2014, September 6th, 2015, set one, September 3rd, 2017. And September 2nd, 2018. Both of those last two shows, 2017, 2018, everything but the third quarter was pretty standard stuff. Um, and I just don't understand the pattern. It's like it's the last night of the tour. It's the last night at Dick's. You're not going to be at Dick's for another year. You're not going to be on tour for perhaps another month at the shortest, for the longest, for four months. Like, just blow it out, guys. I mean, the fourth quarter of set two... It's good. It's uh, the Susie Greenberg. They play at a pretty bright tempo. Contains some nifty Southern Rock, Almondsy, Tralix that aren't really standard. But like with that third quarter, for the 40 minutes, it seemed like they were going to go for it. And even um, out of the Golden Age Jam, it seemed like Trey kind of wanted to go into either uh, Niku or Boogie On. There was like a riff, and the rest of the band didn't pick up on it. And then he just said, fuck it. Let's play Steam. And then the fourth quarter was standard good. But it seemed like a missed opportunity. Yeah. I will say, um, 
Hella groovy 40 the minutes. Jeez. Hell of a groovy 40 minutes. The fourth quarter seemed um, a lot better in person than it did when I looked back at this set list the next morning. Um, I enjoyed it a lot more and felt it fit a lot better. I don't know if I'll re-listen to it, but one thing I want to be of note, and, and we don't mean to be, you know, negative here too much or, or anything, but who, who the hell is bitching about the pace of Golden Age on Sunday night? <laughs> what the hell is wrong with you? Like, one of the most special aspects of that segment of music is that they directly jammed into another song and then played that song at, like, the tempo and groove that they were playing the previous jam. It's one of my favorite segments of music I've ever heard from the band. It's, like, both kitschy and, like, a throwback to, like, 94, 95, and also fucking as sleek and silky as a 1997, 1998 jam. I mean, anyone who's complaining about the pace of Golden Age, just please just stop going now. Like, that was one of my favorite things. I saw them do all weekend. I thought it grooved well. I thought it finally allowed Trey to actually showcase that he does, in fact, know the words to Golden Age. It's just that he has to see it go fast. (laughs) Um... And it led into another excellent jam. I, I have I, I have no understanding for a complaint about that whatsoever. Yeah, I, I thought it was great. I mean, when Fish plays Golden Age at that speed, it's because the other songs were at that tempo and they were doing it in like uniform fashion because it was cool. It's not like a Dead & Co. show where they play slow because they don't have the ability to not play it slow. It's Exactly. Yeah, you know. It's not like this is the new pace of Golden Age. Like, <laughs> come on. <laughs> it was like a one-time thing. It's like when they played uh, uh, that whole slow segment. Llama. That yeah, it's like Slow Llama. But it, that that whole three-song segment reminded me of two previous uh, jams. Um, the uh, uh, Light into Party Time on um 12 30 2016 where they played party time but in the jam of light right and then um the down disease in a no man in no man's land on january 15 2017 where they end up in this groove out of the down disease jam and Trey just starts singing no man in no man's land and it isn't quite no man in no man's land but it's not the jam it's like the fact that they're able to do that now and it's not just a transition it's like we are writing this song through this jam. I don't know. It is such a fantastic stepping stone for Fish. I love it. Wasn't there... Um, there was another time when Golden Age appeared out of a jam. I think it was... 10-22-2013. Yeah, Rochester. Maybe the only show of that tour that could be yeah. slightly described as WTF. Right, yeah. the light is I mean, the Golden Age. It was the same sort of thing. Came out of light. Right. Yeah, that was the only show people were kind of complaining about because it was the first show after Hampton where people got their faces melted. That was sort of like the bridge. Right, they played Rochester, then Glens Falls, then like the Worcester shows. But right, it was the light light jam into Golden Age. They might have like forgot a verse of light or there was like some weird lyrical crimes, but I don't know. Oh yeah, cross-eyed light, Golden Age, and then the set just fell off a cliff. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I would say following a song I heard the ocean sing, their best move would have been to go into You Enjoy Myself there. You got nine minute Jabu, 
You've got a like seven minute Susie, a six minute cross-eyed. That's plenty of time to play You Enjoy Myself in 2018. Play that over 18 to 20 minutes, burn the entire place down. Then the horse silent and Tweezer reprise feels like, you know, just that much better of an encore. Right. Yeah, when I heard them start up a song, I heard the ocean sing, I got excited. But it was a six-minute version, which to their credit, they don't really do much anymore. That actually, that's been a really good vehicle for improv lately. So, totally. that being totally. said, it was kind of weird that it was six minutes. But, anyway, we digress. I think it's time we gave the listeners what they're looking for and played some of uh, these jams being the ghost into cross-eyed and painless from the first night dicks and some segments portions of uh, night three the glorious 40 minute 46 days into tweezer into golden
hope that you enjoyed those bits of jamming from Dick's 2018 Ghost in the Crossside from August 31st, 46 Days into Tweezer into Golden Age from September 2nd. So, two segments of music coming up here. First, we're going to talk about artistic transitions. As we talked about at the top of the show, it's kind of clear that 2018 has been something of a transition year for the band. And um, we want to talk about some moments where some artists made some big transitions and it affected not only themselves, but the larger musical world. So I'm going to talk about a band that um, many of you have to know. Uh, I believe that I would say if you if you like the music we play on this podcast, the chances are that you've heard a song by this band. If not, you've at least heard 10 songs they've covered by bands throughout the 60s. I'm talking about The Birds, a band that loved covering Dylan and basically made a career off their cover of the song Mr. Tambourine Man. And we're going to talk about the album Sweetheart of the Rodeo and the song I Am a Pilgrim. Now, The Birds, perhaps no American band stole from the British invasion to make a career more than The Birds. This is a group that went through a number of lineup changes between 1964 and 1973, with Roger McQuinn being the only constant. They perfected mid-60s jangly pop and remain one of the most influential groups of their era. Rickenbacker guitar. What's that? The Rickenbacker guitar. No one has done more for the Rickenbacker sunburst than Roger McQuinn. Nobody. Anyway. Nobody. Uh, but we're not here to discuss this most famous era of the Birds. We're here to discuss their phenomenal 1968 record, Sweetheart of the Rodeo, an album that all but predicted alt-country as well as a number of other genres, a record that also just turned 50 years old on August 30th. So immediately following David Crosby's exit from the band and with Graham Parsons, 21-year-old Graham Parsons newly on board, they recorded this record in Nashville with a focus on absorbing the country rock vibes that were inspiring them. However, it's of note that due to tension between McGuinn and Parsons, Parsons left the band in August, right before the record was released. The album initially was supposed to be a tribute to all American music of the 20th century, kind of a big, big double album listing project. But uh, with Parsons a part of the band the Nash- and Nashville the immediate setting for the recording, the country became the, fork, the focus. Parsons coined this name Cosmic American Music, which became the goal of the entire recording session. This being a combination of blues, folk, rock, R&B, and honky-tonk. McGuinn was ultimately sold on the idea of transitioning to this sound due to declining audiences over their last two tours, which led him believe that the band needed something of a change. Their link to their past work is ever-present in their two Dylan covers of the album, You Ain't Going Nowhere, which pretty much everybody who listens to this podcast should know, and the song Nothing Was Delivered, both of which were included on the then-unreleased basement tapes with the band. The song that we're featuring here, I'm a Pilgrim, was popularized by Merle Travis in the late 1940s, and an additional artist featured includes Cindy Walker, Gene Autry, the Leuven Brothers, Merle Haggard, Luke McDaniels, and Woody Guthrie, in addition to a few of McGuinn's own songs. Now, following the recording sessions in Nashville in March, 
They performed at the Grand Ole Opry and became the first, quote, hippie long hair band to have that privilege. The band was then booed and heckled by the crowd, and when Parsons decided on the fly to dedicate a song to his grandma, they were all but assured of never being invited back. Later, their performance on Nashville's WSM Radio Hour featured an on-air mocking by legendary DJ Ralph Emery. The post-production work of the record was highlighted by the legal battle between Parsons and his former label, as well as McGuinn recording over Parsons' vocals so it remained a Birds record, a move that would irk Parsons for years to come. Upon release, the record was praised for its departure from the band's traditional sound, but it also resulted in their lowest album sales to date because their counterculture audience suddenly felt alienated. In the years since, this has been regarded as a false country album. Instead of feeling like the world it sought to embody, it sounds like an idealized version of country, something that would come to define alt-country in the coming decades. The record laid the blueprint for the Flying Burrito Brothers, Dylan's Nashville Skyline, the entire 70s LA country rock movement, pretty much the entire career of the Eagles, the genre outlaw country, as well as alt country, which leads us directly to two of our favorite bands of the last 30 years, Uncle Tupelo and especially Wilco. So it's a really influential record. It's a record that's been uh, in my head a lot for the last couple of days. I would certainly recommend that you guys all check out Sweetheart of the Rodeo by The Birds. The song that we're going to play right now for you is called I Am a Pilgrim. So in terms of artistic transitions, I'm going to take a little bit of a different tact than Brian did and kind of give an overview of a career evolution of one of my favorite bands. So I think we might have featured on this podcast once in some way, shape or form. That is the seminal 90s Britpop band Blur. So I think if you're listening to this podcast, you're probably familiar with at least some of their songs, certainly Song two, which is the woohoo song, or I should say woohoo, that's been used at stadiums and commercials and has been absolutely ubiquitous since it first came out in 1997. But, you know, certainly they have a, a lot of other somewhat popular songs as well. Nothing quite as popular as that one. But really, this band, they began back in 1991. And they embraced kind of the tail end of uh, the Madchester baggy scene that we had discussed. 
they all had bowl haircuts and they put out kind of like a lightweight dancey Madchester record called Leisure. And the only song in this that would kind of indicate the direction that they would be headed in was the song uh, Sing, which is a haunting piano ballad that actually was not on the American version of the album, but you might know it as a song from the Train Spotting soundtrack when uh, Mark Renton is going through some heroin withdrawal and seeing all sorts of weird things. It's an awesome haunting piano song. But this record, they decided that uh, they had some more outsized ambitions aside from being like a cute band, a cute dance band with cool haircuts. So in 1993, they reinvented themselves a very melodic, kinks-indebted pop band with the album Modern Life is Rubbish. Now this is really where they began to embrace being a full-on, full-on British type band. It reminds several eras of... Uh, definitively British music. And this resulted in 1994, which might be the ultimate Britpop document with the album Park Life. This is the record. It's got uh, the song, the disco song, Girls and Boys. It's got the song End of a Century to the End, which is kind of a Scott Walker tribute with Letitia Sater from, from Stereolab. This was the record that made them huge superstars in England, and really, when people talk about Britpop in the 90s, this is kind of the first album that they look to. And then in 1995, a year later, whereas uh, sort of Park Life in 1994 dealt more with the working class, in 1995, they made an album called The Great Escape, which sort of took what they learned of Park Life and perfected it and sort of turned them towards the suburbs. So less working class, more suit and tie family, dealing with uh, stereotypes in the suburbs, dealing with the charmless man in the suburbs, dealing with Mr. Robinson and his quango, driving cars, thinking about cars. So also, this is the time when they were in direct competition with Oasis, who in 1995 put out their second album, What's the Story, Morning Glory? And I believe in the great Brit Pop Wars of 1995, the first single off of that album, Roll With It, went right up against the first single from The Great Escape being Country House. And while I think that Roll With It did better on the charts, if I'm not mistaken, Oasis won the battle. You could argue that Blur won the war. So they kind of panned themselves into a corner with this record. In 1997, they put out the self-titled album. This was the record that had Song 2, the Woohoo song. And this is the one where the guitarist Graham Coxon kind of wore his obsession with the American rock band Pavement on his sleeve. This is much less British, much slow, more lo-fi American indie rock. And then in 1999, they followed that one up with becoming even more serious artists with 13. This one has songs masquerading as like noise collages. It did have some uh, very excellent ballads kind of dealing with the dissolution of uh, Damon Albarn, his relationship with uh, Justine Frischman from Elastica, also another 90s Britpop staple. That was on the rocks. A lot of that got manifested on this album. And eventually, Graham Coxon left the band had a bit of a solo career, and in 2003, the band went on without him and even became 
deeper into the hole in terms of artistry with 2003's Think Tank, which is a fantastic album. But, I mean, they were so incredibly removed from the rather chipper Britpop and uh, the dance craze of the 1991 record that, you know, you could really trace the evolution. And since that album, Damon Albarn, he's had put out many records with Gorillaz. He's uh, put a solo album out called Everyday Robots. He had a side project called The Good, The Bad, and The Queen with the bass player from The Clash. All of Damon Albarn's side projects have one thing in common. None of them are as good as Blur. But there's been some reunion gigs uh, in, in the UK. I know they played a reunion gig at Madison Square Garden a few years ago. And actually... Uh, they did put out a very good full band record in 2015 called The Magic Whip. But I think at this point, the band is completely on hiatus. Whether or not they put anything else out as Blur remains to be seen. I wouldn't be surprised if they don't. But I would encourage everyone to really uh, get all the Blur records, chart the evolution of that band because it's fascinating. And while they're a completely fantastic singles band, all the records have... Uh, deep cuts that make them out to be just as good albums artists. So the three songs I've kind of picked out in terms of illustrate the transition, we're going to listen to there's no other way from leisure end of a century from park life and MOR from uh, the self-titled record from 1997. That's kind of uh, their version of uh, doing like Berlin era, David Bowie. So let's listen to some blur. I need to unload 
For walking us through the career overview of Blur, one of my favorite bands as well, and agree with you in a lot of ways. There, um, I love Blur. I love everything Damon Albarn's done with Blur. I'm not really into anything that is side projects. It's <laughs> just kind of how I've been. Um, but really, is Plastic Beach from 2010. That's very good. That is very good. You're yeah, absolutely right. That's, about that. that's an awesome. Far album. better than far better than any Gorillaz album has a right to be. That's totally, totally true. Um, Although they didn't so, have Clint Eastwood, and Tab plays Clint Eastwood. So, you know, you want your Trey Damon connection. There you go. There it is. There it is. Um, so moving into new album recommendations. It's been a couple episodes since we've done this. And now that we're moving into the fall, this will be a staple here going forward. I don't care what happens. You guys got to know what to listen to as we move into the last quarter of uh, 2018. We're going to start getting to the point where we start counting down our favorite records of the year. Um, So new record from a band that we actually discussed back in episode six, our episode on the Fukuoka Twist. I highlighted their 2017 LP in this exact segment. Band is from Australia. They're called The Necks. The album that I discussed in 2017 was called Unfold. The album that I'm discussing now just came out. It's called Body. So Body is the next 20th album, and it's comprised of a single track lasting over 50 minutes and is essentially broken into four segments. There's not a ton I can say about this other than you just have to absolutely fucking hear this record. It's unbelievable. It peaks halfway through, like 25, 30 minutes in, with an arrival of a minor keyed peak that rivals the Camden Down with Disease. Except here, the band pushes this theme forward over 20 minutes, slowly but surely breaking it down all over again. It's unbelievable stuff. And, you know, just of note, and again, there's not much more I can say. You guys just have to listen to this record. If you like improvisational music, if you like jamming that peaks, this is an amazing record for you. Uh, I don't know how Fish fans don't fall back on or know about a band like The Next for their immediate post-tour recovery. It's so beyond me. I mean, with all of the sub-tier jam bands that we are following in this day and age, there are bands like The Next out there that are doing so much in line with what we love about what's singularly unique about fish in this larger community. But nobody seems to want to listen to them. I don't know. I don't get it. But please listen to the next body. Excellent, excellent album. Yeah, that album fucking rules. That's uh, no other way of putting it. Highly recommend it. So the album so the album I'm going to talk about is actually uh, been getting some good hype from Burn the Pot, Stephen Hyden. He's a big fan of this record. This is a band called Foxing, like boxing, except with an F. 
The album is called Nearer My God, like Nearer My God to Thee. It's their third album. I will admit that I hadn't really heard about this band until this third album came out and then started getting a lot of a lot of pre-release hype. And it, uh, you know, it's certainly everything I heard about it got me to stand up and take notice. And when I first heard it, I wasn't really into it because I thought, all right, this guy's singing with a falsetto. It kind of strangely, he sounds a bit like the singer from Maroon 5. But the more I listened to it, I thought, you know, I'm keep listening. And I just kind of got under my skin and realized that it was it's a pretty fantastic record. It's, I guess it's affiliated with the third wave of emo, but often the word emo can have somewhat negative connotations. You end up thinking about like punk pop bands, about breaking up with your college girlfriend and being miserable. Well, Foxing don't sound like that. I mean, I think the closest corollary this album comes to is kind of like Dear Science era TV on the radio, except with more of a budget. I mean, this really sounds like if TV on the radio had a lot of money and just wanted to fucking go for it, which these guys do. And it's a big, arty rock record that the kind of thing you don't really hear that much anymore. I know some people have compared it to like their OK Computer, I guess from like an evolutionary standpoint, I, mean, I don't think they sound much like Radiohead, but certainly there's the nine minute song. There's a part where there's like some bagpipes in there. Uh, you know, the singer's not afraid. Uh, his name's Connor Murphy. He's not afraid to utilize a falsetto. Be kind of ridiculous. I mean, sing about things like ashing cigarettes on gravestones, putting photos and corkboards on following his dead friends on Facebook. You know, I mean, there's definitely some some weighty emo topics, but it's just delivered in a fashion when they mean it, man. They spent a lot of time and money on this record, and it shows. And they're actually, they played the Bowery Barroom in New York City last night, and I thought about going because I just think this album sounds incredible live. And it kind of, it sold out. I'm sure they'll be back playing like a slightly larger venue. But yeah, the first half of it is very TV on the radio. The second half is more ballads. It almost kind of sounds like a Peter Gabriel vibe. It's just, I'd recommend it if you can get past some of the more bombastic aspects and some of the heart on sleeve lyrics. I think you'll find it very interesting. I think it's great. Brian, you like this record, right? Yeah, I would totally agree with what you're saying. This record is really... I'll admit to something I think that you you have I'll admit to something that I think you deal with as well during the summertime is I get so immersed in fish tour that um there's definitely like two or three weeks ago by where I don't listen to a lot of new music and um this was the record that like snapped me back out of that here in twenty eighteen. You had passed in my way and it was the one thing I was spinning aside from like preparing for our episodes and listening to fish. So this got me back into summer 2018 stuff in a big way. And so I really will think about it with that sense. Um, it sounds to me like such a throwback to the 2000s. And I just, I love it. I think it's a killer record. One thing I will say about this record, the title track, which is song number five, like I was listening to it, the first four songs for the first time. And I thought, okay, this almost kind of sounds like if Imagine Dragons wanted to make like, 
their challenging record and hired Dave Fridman to do it. But then I was about to turn it off, and then the fifth song came on, and that song is such a fucking bolt from the blue. That's like, that's the litmus test. That was one that made me rethink the first four songs in a whole different light because I just thought the title track was so fantastic. And then after that, you get like the like the nine minute song called Five Cups. That's probably like the most TV on the radio, almost like a grizzly bear sound to it. Right. But yeah. The, the, the title track kind of saved me. Actually, I do like the whole album now, but they can sound a bit ridiculous. And then you get to the title track and it ropes you with a huge hook. And then I'd be surprised if you listened to that song and just didn't want to go back and listen to it again and then the rest of the album. <laughs> totally, totally agree. Yeah, there was certainly some of my like cynicism thinking, all right, fuck these guys. This is, I, I, I see what's going on here. And then I heard the fifth song and I said, okay, I think I'm sold. All right. So moving into our last segment of music here, we're going to talk about sleek musical segues. So think about the ghost in a cross-eyed. Think about the 46 days and the tweezer and then tweezer getting into golden age. Pretty sleek, sleek transitions there, huh? So we're going to talk about a couple examples here of Segways that happen on excellent records that uh, really stand out to us. And the first I'm going to talk about is the Beastie Boys, Paul's Boutique, and the segment Shake Your Rump into Johnny Rial. So you all know the Beastie Boys, and if you don't, please go back to your childhood <laughs> sleepaway camp and blast License to Ill. <laughs> Seriously, if there's any music fans out there that did not experience that as like a gateway drug into music, I'm sorry, just go back and do it all over again because that was a formative 9- and 10-year-old Brian phase. I'm sure it was for you as well. Get yourself some rhyming and stealing. Hang out with Ali Babbitt and the 40 Thieves. Yeah, obviously. That was a that was a huge record. That was one of those records in elementary school that I thought was really subversive, but they got it on mainstream radio, and then nothing they ever did sounded like that ever again. No, no, it's so unique in their catalog. It's wild. And, you know, I mean, to be fair, um, there's a lot on that record that makes them sound like massive assholes. I think that they came to regret in years to come. But yeah, super juvenile. Very, very juvenile and uh, very formative record when you are a juvenile. Um, Paul's Boutique, on the other hand, the band's second album, really represents a huge moment of growth for the band. I mean, this could almost be used for two different segments uh, here in this episode. Um, so the album sales for this record is really interesting. The, the backstory and, and, and long-term story of this record is really fascinating. So the record was almost all but stopped being promoted by their record label, Capital Records, because the album sales declined so badly. Um, it would go double platinum within the within ten years, and it's gone on to become one of the biggest, you know, most influential albums of all of the last probably thirty years. It's an unbelievable record. Um, this album represented that moment when the band went from kind of punkish young delinquents to critical darlings. But leading to the recording of the record, the band was called One Hit Wonders on, on repeat. They were abandoned by Rick Rubin, who is their producer, as well as Def Jam. 
uh, the record label that they were on. And they were essentially in exile in L.A. when they began to write, write again. Um, there was a three-year gap between License to Ill and uh, Paul's Boutique. So all this kind of built up to this record that probably for you know record companies, for their label, feels like it should have um, come out you know, a year, year and a half after License to Ill came out. But, anyway, but the band instead decided to hold it off for a long time. So the record was produced by the Dust Brothers, and the record brought the practice of sampling to the mainstream and really opened many people's eyes to the possibilities within the emerging technology. Uh, 105 songs were sampled on the record, including 24 on the album's last track, B-Boy, Booyah Bass. Most of the songs in the record were cleared and paid for, something that would have been unthinkable, unthinkable, just 10 to 15 years later. Interestingly, many of the backing tracks had been written by the Dust Brothers for an instrumental clubbing release album, but they were repurposed for the Beastie Boys when they started to write lyrics and rhymes over them. So the record itself is a touch touchstone moment in pop rap rock history. Not rap rock, but rap and rock. It showcases a band that appeared ready for irrelevant reinventing themselves. It showcases the importance of sampling and how it would impact music over the next three decades. And it touched upon the enduring legacy of junk culture in America. Miles Davis once said that he never tired of listening to the record. And Chuck D said that at the time, the dirty secret in hip hop was that the Beastie Boys had the best lyrics and the best beats. The Sounds of Science contained a sample of the Beatles' The End. When the band began preparing preliminary papers to sue the Beastie Boys, the group decided to keep the sample, saying, what's cooler than being sued by the Beatles? So it's a huge record. It's a record that's been influenced, uh, that's influenced so many other artists and rappers, as well as producers, and um, really lingers over rap music still to this day. And this opening segment of Shake Your Rump into Johnny Rael is one of the funkiest and grooviest transitions you'll hear on tape. Very excited for you guys to listen to this right now and hope that if you have not listened to Paul's Boutique in a number of years, we can change that with this episode. Your name, Michael Diamond. No, mine's Clarence. From downtown Manhattan, the village. My style's wild, and you know that it's still it. This old bag stepping, and you're doing the fuck. Shake your rope.
okay, I, uh, you'll get no argument from here that Paul's Boutique is simply one of the most enjoyable albums ever made, as are many Beastie Boys albums, but that one especially. So I'm going to talk about is, um, something entirely different. I'm going to talk about the artist Frank Black, a.k.a. Black Francis, a.k.a. Charles Thompson, who you probably know as the frontman of the Pixies, which are uh, currently currently in existence. I'm actually going to talk about his second solo album, Teenager of the Year, that came out in 1994, and the first three songs on it, Whatever Happened to Pong, Thalassocracy, and I Want to Live on an Abstract Plane. So these were actually sequenced on the CD really to have no gaps, and they kind of form the one three-and-a-half-minute suite, which opens up that album. So originally... Uh, Frank Black, he broke up the Pixies in 1993. Like their last album at that point, Trompe Le Mans, came out in 1991. They toured a little bit. They had kind of a disastrous set opening up for U2. And when the he broke them up, I think, uh, via fax in 1993, he already had his first solo record was ready to go. So Teenager of the Year came out in 1994. This album's got 22 songs. Most hovering just under over three minutes, and there's no duds. Like every song on this record is a little, little like puzzle box of a tune with a depth sense of humor that kind of owes a lot to his idols. They might be giants. We actually put out a record that year called John Henry, which reminds me a lot of this record because it was played with a full band and has a ton of quirky songs. So I bought this record when I was 14 years old. It was one of the first albums I purchased after seeing Frank Black host MTV's 120 Minutes and being like, okay, the other kids at my school won't have this album. This album is important. This might make me cool. And it actually made a few decent-sized ripples in the indie rock world when it was released. But I don't want to hear anything about this album at all anymore. I mean, this is really one of the great lost alternative records of uh, the early 90s. And I think part of this has to do with the fact that like Frank Black released a ridiculous amount of solo albums, of varying quality, both under uh, the Frank Black name, the Black Francis name, also uh, with his backing band, the Catholics. And I think also because in 2004, the Pixies kind of got back together in like a never ending reunion tour. Um, I actually saw that in 2004 and it was awesome because at that point, the essential bass player Kim Deal from the Breeders. Uh, she was in the band. Kim Deal has since left the band. They've put out some very questionable albums of new material. They continue to play shows with different bass player. They just recently had a tour where they played Sheds at Weezer. I don't know who the heck need to see that, but I have friends who went, so what the hell do I know? But also, um, I guess if this album kind of had a hit, it would have been the first single, Headache, which kind of had a fun video. And it was one of the songs played by Tranastasio and his buddies at the infamous, quote, New York gig at Club Toast on May 21st, of, uh, 1997, where they run through the 90s alt-rock canon, which we kind of discussed way the hell back in episode two. I don't think Tranastasio listens to this podcast, Buddy, if you can hear us, this is an open invitation for you to come on the podcast and talk to all the people about 
the May 21st, 1997 show that I'm just fascinated by. And that, that show is kind of like beyond the pond in its infancy. So come on. Come on and talk about it. We want to hear it. You played Stereo Lab at that show. You played this song. You played some My Bloody Valentine. So anyway, I'm going to showcase the first three songs in this record. Also, uh, when Frank Black hosted that episode of 120 Minutes, these are uh, the songs he played all back to back to back. And what's interesting is that kind of by putting out a 22-song album, Frank Black beat Drake at his own game by 20 years. This is to be an ultimate document for the streaming era. This is like a mixtape. This is like what Drake does. Anyway, let's listen to Whatever Happened to Pong, Thalassocracy, and I Want to Live on an Abstract Plane. Man. 
All right, guys. Thank you so much for hanging with us here on our 43rd episode where we recap Dick's 2018, the impact of Curveball, how things stand at the end of Fish Summer Tour. We're just quickly recapping the songs that we played here throughout this entire episode. Uh, so in segment one, where we talked about artistic transitions, I talked about the song I Am a Pilgrim by the Birds off of Sweetheart of the Rodeo. And Dave featured not one, not two, but three Blur songs spanning the entire career of the band, showing their evolution as a group. There is no other way. End of a century and M.O.R. Uh, new album recommendations. I talked about the next body. Dave talked about Foxing's Nearer My God. And then in our last segment, focusing on sleek musical segues, I talked about Shake Your Rump into Johnny Rael off of Paul's Boutique by the Beastie Boys. And Dave talked about Frank Black's uh, Teenager of the Year, uh, the songs in question, Whatever Happened to Pong, Thalassocracy, and I Want to Live on an Abstract Plane. Live on my abstract roof, in my abstract house, in abstract mouse. I want to live on an abstract plane. God, that's a good song. Anyway, we're on social media. Just a reminder of our social media links. You can find us on Twitter at at underscore beyond the pond, one word. Our web uh, website, we have everything is uh, beyondthepond.simplecast.fm. Spotify, the Beyond the Pond podcast song master playlist, which we try to update with as many songs as we can that are featured in this episode. And you can find all the Osiris podcasts, the Osiris Podcast Network at osirispod.com. And write us a review on iTunes. We enjoy reading them, and it helps us with our iTunes visibility, which I think we all could agree is a good thing. Absolutely. And uh, from a publishing standpoint, you guys have come to know this well, even though we've broken all the rules over the summer. Typically publish every other Tuesday. Tuesdays have no feel, so it's a good time to go beyond the pond. Um, We will be getting back into our publishing structure and then getting right back out of it because Fish is going on fall tour in about six weeks at this from this point in time. Um, (laughs) So... Uh, get used to us for the next couple of weeks and then uh, we'll be posting with a little bit more regularity after that. If you've gotten with listen this far, we appreciate it. I think this was a good ep, long ep, but a lot of good stuff back up in there. Also, we had a lot to say. A lot to say, a lot of stuff. Also, like always, just want to put it out there that um, it's harder than ever to make music make money making music these days. So it's certainly one thing to stream. We enjoy using Spotify as a playlist. It's really as a means of um, means of discovering these songs. If you like what you hear, go see these bands live, buy some merchandise, buy a vinyl, just do something, anything to get some harder and dollars into the hands of the artists that uh, we like showcasing here on Beyond the Pond. And on that note... Come back for our, the next episode is going to go up. I think we're probably going to have a very special guest, and it could be a very interesting episode without uh, getting too much into that. At that point, come back with us, hold hands, do some kumbaya. We will introduce you to bands other than jam bands. We will talk about fish. We will talk about 
I don't know, the 25th Amendment. Who knows what we'll talk about? <laughs> but join hands, and together we will go beyond the pond. She says the sand's in the carpet. Dirty little monsters. Eating all the muscles. Picking up the rubbish. Give her effervescence. She needs a little sparkle. Osiris.